Welcome to the 126th Air Refueling Wing Podcast of the Illinois Air National Guard at Scott Air Force Base. I'm your host, Tech Sergeant Brian Ellison. The 126th Air Refueling Wing Podcast focused on people, mission, and community. These are certainly strange times we live in. I'm doing my drill virtually from my house here in St. Charles, Missouri. I'm joined by Colonel Dr. Pamela Fonte, commander of the 126th Medical Group, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Tony Trong, 126th Medical Group, Chief of Aerospace Medicine. He is also an emergency room doctor in Redbud, Illinois, and Lieutenant Colonel Troy Compardo, Chief Administrator, 126th Medical Group, currently on duty at McCormick Place in Chicago. Thank you all for joining me during our virtual drill. Colonel Fonte, I'll start with you. How long have you had troops helping during the pandemic? Since the beginning, uh, we had one physician, uh, one medic go out immediately, and one nurse practitioner shortly thereafter. Uh, right now, we have seven medical group members that are currently deployed, and that includes uh, Colonel Compardo. We have two that have returned. And I should also mention that there are other members in the wing who aren't medical group members but they are medical and they're civilian occupations. So we have a handful of those who are out there supporting the fight uh, to help with setting up testing facilities or working with IEMA out there. Um, some of them belong to logistics or CE. So I want to give props to them as well. Colonel Chong, uh, you've been, you are in a, a, a unique situation in Redbud. Can you tell us about yours? You are a chief physician and flight surgeon uh, with the med group. What is your position there in Redbud? So I'm a staff ER physician over at uh, Redbud Community Hospital. It's a 40 bed hospital. Um, and so uh, we're basically the front line for anybody that uh, comes in with any type of symptoms, uh, you know, COVID aside, but you know, if, if you're coming in, I know with this, all this uh, social distancing, uh, we've had a decrease in the amount of uh, injuries, like, you know, broken bones and scabs and everything, but people are still coming in for shortness of breath and chest pain and uh, things of that nature. Uh, anybody that comes into Redbud uh, emergency room um, immediately gets a mask when, when you're coming in. Um, we have very limited limited to, I'll be honest with you, with no visitors. So if someone comes in the emergency room, if you can't speak for yourself, you know, if you're a child or if you have some dementia, there's no visitor, no visitors allowed. Um, so it's, it's very unique uh, what we've been doing. Uh, anybody that comes in with a shortness of breath uh, over the past uh, week or so is, uh, is pretty much getting a COVID testing. Um, and then, and then uh, some come back, uh, most of them come back negative and some do come back positive and we take care of them. Uh, we take care of them you know, from the beginning to end as well. So. How has that affected your service uh, during this pandemic in the, in the military with the Air National Guard? You know, this is, this is I think we're going to uncharted territory here. When the COVID outbreak um, first started and the call for uh, assistance from, from state, uh, you know, Air National Guard assets came out, it was difficult for me to go to my employer and go, hey, you know, can I go work for, for the guard? It, it's difficult because this is a medical emergency. This is a medical catastrophe, a medical response. If I leave Redbud to go somewhere else, I'm hurting Redbud. So that's one of the unique aspects that I had to juggle within myself of going, hey, is this something that I, I, I can do? One of, being, one of the most amazing things about being in the Air National Guard 
um, is that we uh, work within our own community. And Redbud is considered an underserved area. So if I left Redbud, they would have been docking, they would have been down an ER doctor. And if one of their ER doctors gets COVID, they can't go into work. So, you know, there's even more limited uh, ability there. So. Right. Colonel uh, Comparto. Uh, how long have you been up in McCormick Place? Well, I was, uh, well, I was called to serve on April 3rd. Yeah, April 3rd. So we hit the ground uh, April 3rd at uh, the Thompson Center. So we were introduced to the director of IEMA and Homeland Security for the state of Illinois, which is uh, Director Tate Nadeau. And so we, we had about 20 of us who went up there and we essentially kind of picked the lines of effort that we wanted to uh, participate in. Uh, McCormick Place as a hospital administrator, both in my civilian side and in the and in the military, the McCormick Place was the one that uh, I was most suited to go and and support. And so basically, the next day, I started integrating with the McCormick Place leadership team as both uh, a representative of Vaima and her, and then also for liaisoning with the Air National Guard forces that were there, which was Joint Task Force Build. Lieutenant Kent's got a lot of press. He's from the 183rd or 182nd, I think. Um, uh, for his efforts there. Uh, so interfacing with them and liaisoning with the DOD forces and got put into the unified, well, I kind of inserted myself into the unified command structure for the facility, which has been an amazing adventure, uh, probably one of the lifetime for me for sure. What's been, when you got up there, what was the, uh, what was the setup like before? Because they, had, they hadn't opened up McCormick Place, had they yet? No. So, you know, McCormick Place is one of the largest convention centers in the world, right? So it was kind of really, and I've been there before for conferences. So when you go into the situation and you come into a structure and they were only maybe three to four days into this and it felt like they had been there for six years or six months, you know, it takes in the civilian side, it can take a year to two years to build a facility. And in the course of three days, they were already far along the path of building out a 3000 bed medical capability, which would have been the largest medical facility in the country, um, field, field medical facility in the country. In fact, probably one of the largest healthcare facilities in the country as well. So it was really interesting. They didn't have, they just started getting some of the leadership structure in place uh, there. We had a unified command meeting at 1030 and uh, they were still kind of norming and storming and, and brainstorming all at the same time. And uh, it was interesting mix of uh, uniform personnel. There was only a handful of, of folks like me there, uh, the green suitors, so to speak, a lot of state, uh, state agencies, city agencies, Chicago Department of Public Health was uh, leading a lot of that effort. Um, and just a tremendous amount of private industry, too. It was amazing to see how everybody was coming together so fast to build this place out. What was their reaction to how, uh, Colonel Comparto, how, what was their reaction to how fast you guys were able to build out this facility? Well, no, it, nobody had ever done it before, right? So everybody was really, frankly, quite amazed that everybody could work together so fast. Um, without so putting aside all your self-interest that may occur outside of a pandemic or a national emergency like this you can get a lot of things done uh, much faster uh, for example uh, we installed epic which is the electronic health record in, in five days uh, usually in the civilian side that can take a year of design and planning and implementation to put epic into your as a solution and they did it in five days so it just shows you that how agile you can be and efficient you can be if you really put away your self-interest and just want to focus on uh, at the end of the day taking care of people colonel fonte um you had said well maybe colonel comparto can even speak about this but uh 
you said you had some visitors from uh, Poland come over for this? Did they come to help or were they just wanting to see how we did it? Yeah, so the Polish medical contingent was uh, very unique, right? So that's our state partnership program, of course, with Poland. There was uh, several physicians in that group, several civilians in that group, and they really wanted to share best practices that they've seen. They were actually in Lombardy in Italy. So some of them practiced there during that crisis. So they shared some of their perspective there. They shared their perspective from Poland and what Poland is doing um, to, to combat the illness. Um, and they wanted to see what we were up to as well. They visited a lot of the testing sites. They visited uh, the Office of Emergency Management Chicago. Uh, they visited McCormick Place. So they made the rounds. I was their primary interface in McCormick Place uh, for a few days, a few of those visits. And we did a lot of best practice sharing as far as what they're seeing from the data, what their lines of effort are going to be to combat the illness going forward. And so it was really more of a best practice share and just uh, see how everybody's developing their strategy. Sorry, you may have said this, but my cat is distracting me. Uh, she's stuck in the room with me. <laughs> what, what was, uh, what was, what, what were, the, what were the Polish's, the, the Polish uh, doctor's impression of how, we were doing here, at least, well, how you were doing in McCormick Place? Well, um, frankly, they were kind of shocked and awed by it all. Um, you know, Poland doesn't have the resources that uh, the U.S. has. And when they saw what we were able to accomplish um, in just three to four weeks at McCormick Place, uh, what, I remember one of the uh, civilians in that group said, I told, you know, he basically said, look at what America can do when they put their minds to it. They can do anything. Right. And so even though they, they said, you know, we, it looks like we probably overbuilt um, now uh, retrospectively at the time, it didn't seem that way. Um, and they took away, you know, some of the capability we had, which was, you know, these negative specifically hall B, which is our negative pressure tents that we put in with inline oxygen, medical oxygen, HEPA filters, uh, mechanical beds. Um, that's a very mobile capability. That's 750 of those tents that can be broken down and repositioned uh, strategically across the state. And that's, that's a concept that they're going to run with as well. Um, and that they've already started developing. So, but frankly, they were just amazed about the, the resources and ability for us to pull that off in such a short amount of time. Is Poland having as big a problem as the rest of the world? Or are they, I guess, I mean, everybody seems like they're, I don't know anybody that's not been untouched by this. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak to the, I looked some of that up. I can't speak to the specific data. I know they've, they're struggling with it as well. They've, they take out some different strategies and they took a really aggressive approach with, with uh, sheltering in place. And they said their folks are uh, really taking it uh, seriously. Um, their culture is that if the government says do something, everybody does it and does it to the hundred <laughs> percent. So uh, uh, Colonel uh, Fonti, Looking in the future, how do you think that will this how do you, will this be something that we train on that we train for now every year that you think that once this is over we t we take lessons learned and we build on this for training? Uh, I don't know specifically if we will train train for pandemics, but the surf P unit uh, at which is housed at the one eighty seconds. What's those? Um, what is that? Sorry. The SURFP, the, the Chemical Biological Enhanced Response Force Package. So oh. to see Bernie Enhanced Response Force Package. The medical element of that is housed at Peoria at the 182nd. And I believe they have about 50 medical members that support that package. And they train um, and exercise all the time with the Army folks um, to be able to handle any kind of 
you know, hazmat response, and they were the first medical entities to mobilize in support of this. So really the, the medics um, and providers and the administrator that we've provided were to augment the fact that they didn't have enough individuals to meet the need for the state of Illinois. And again, our TAG and our governor were very sensitive to the fact that like Colonel Trong had alluded to, we don't want to rob the civilian community of their resources. Um, so I, I don't know if Colonel Pinkardo has been in the conversations about training specifically for pandemics, um, but every medical group in the Air Force trains disease containment planning um, on a required basis. I, my guess is those plans will be dusted out and looked at a little more closely as we prepare for readiness. That's my guess. Um, the 126 medical group specifically, because we're a tenant on a host installation, the 375th medical group is responsible, just as the 375th Air Mobility Wing is responsible for disease containment planning. And of course, we don't create the plan because we don't own the installation or the facility, but we provide manpower support when needed, you know, should a pandemic specifically hit our area or any kind of mass casualty or you know, hazardous material response, we would be right there with the active duty um, helping you know, as long as the orders are in place correctly. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my guess for what will happen with the future. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Colonel Trong, but what can we do? I know where people are getting restless and they want to go outside and they want to go out and they want to, what can we do or what precautions can right. we do? There, there's quite a few things. There's quite a few things that you can do to prevent the spread of the disease. Um, you know, the social distance, social distancing of at least six feet away is still something that's very important. But I think the most important thing that people are forgetting is washing your hands. Wash it often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. It's the most effective way to protect yourself. If you don't have soap and water, uh, you can have hand sanitizer that has at least 60% alcohol. Um, avoid touching your, your eyes, your nose, your mouth. Um, that's very important because we are always constantly, you know, you know, rubbing our eyes or touching our nose. Um, so if you can avoid doing that, that would be extremely important. And the other key thing is, you know, if, if you don't feel well, stay home. Uh, this includes visiting the doctor's office. Um, I wouldn't show up unannounced at the family practice doctor's at the family practice office. I'd call them and say, Hey, is this something I need to need to come in for? Or is it something that I need to wait it out? Um, coughing, if you have to cough or sneeze, you know, coughing, coughing into your shoulder, um, wearing the cloth masks are, I think are important. Um, the cloth mask is, I, it was something at the very beginning. I think if you asked me six weeks ago, what do I think of cloth, cloth masks? I'd say it's helpful, but you know, I wouldn't rely on it a hundred percent. The government has really, well, I want to say the government, the CDC has recommended cloth masks mainly because of the shortage of the N95 masks. So cloth masks are extremely valuable. It doesn't block everything, but it does block a majority of things that you're sneezing out um, um, or when you're coughing out. So those are some good tips for you. Uh, when you, do, if you, when I know in St. Charles, I think they're kind of getting a little bit more laxed on the uh, get togethers, but I would still take those necessary precautions to, to prevent other people from getting sick or prevent yourself from getting sick too. Thanks, sir. Uh, Colonel Comparto, what 
what's uh shoot i lost my train of thought uh what is what's your pet capacity not capacity but how is your level well, i don't know what the term is how many people are in in the beds in mccormick place i guess is the what i really wanted the simple <laughs> well, way to i ask. don't know if you <laughs> well i don't know if you saw the governor and the mayor came out with a press release yesterday saying we're going to start standing down mccormick place um and so we're actually in the spot of now where we're kind of slowly discharging our patients we have and what the reason why is it the McCormick place is a convention center that has to go back to being a convention center uh, eventually right so we're kind of slowly kind of getting out of our uh, patient load right now which has never been very high frankly um, we did some community needs testing early on and found that the need for low acuity COVID treatment is really not what the community needs they need a higher level of uh, care if the if the peak occurs again so the two big halls that we have, which are 1,700 beds and 500 beds that are low acuity, we're slowly um, gonna reposition those assets strategically around the state of Illinois. So that's kind of the planning process I'm, I'm taking part in now. Um, and then the, the hall B, which is our more moderately complex patients, those who need more oxygen and line oxygen, medical oxygen, that will stay on standby um, through uh, kind of an undetermined amount of time as we watch the data over the next uh, months and as we watch the electric procedures in Illinois start up again. So what's gonna happen is hospital bed capacity for their surge capacity is gonna start coming down while they start doing electric procedures. So we wanna kind of monitor, monitor that to make sure they have a way to offload those patients to potentially McCormick Place or some of the other uh, facilities that we have stood up actually around the Chicagoland. Uh, one thing I wanna kind of go back to, we had this conversation about um, not pulling Dr. Trong out um, because he's going to, you know, red bud would fall apart without Dr. Trong. That's for, that's for clear. Um, but uh, uh, that's one thing that's been fascinating. McCormick Place, um, we wouldn't have been able to pull off McCormick Place if DuPage Medical Group um, didn't step up to help support the, cl the clinical aspect of that mission. And the reason why DuPage Medical Group was available is because all those physicians weren't busy anymore. So it's a medical group, outpatient physicians. So they saw their volume cut in half. And so they said, hey, we'll step up and help this mission because we have a lot of people who want to work more. And so they were able to donate or offer their services for, you know, they contracted with the state for that. But it's kind of a fascinating part of this uh, pandemic that you see is uh, the decrease in volume of our outpatient physicians and how they've come kind of to the fight in a, in a different way. Colonel Compardo, what's been the people's reaction to seeing the military in Chicago? Uh, overwhelming, overwhelming support, frankly. Um, I think they make, it makes them feel better that we're there, right? Um, uh, we always get lots of compliments, you know, like we always do. Thanks for your service. Thanks for your service. And uh, I think we did a lot of great things at the testing sites, at the alternative care facilities besides McCormick Place. Um, just to see that show of force and support, I think the community just uh, was overwhelmingly supportive. And they walk, it's interesting, you walk into these meetings, even, even myself, and they always point to me for the answers, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, the uniform gives you some kind of, uh, you know, influence, so to speak. And, you know, we just choose to have to bring people together, frankly, so. That's great. Um, how many uh, how many troops are, how many troops are there at McCormick Place? Can you, or about, I don't wanna give a specific number, but just about. Yeah, so roughly, roughly uh, 60 or uh, 45 to 60 are assigned to McCormick Place uh, as part of task force build. Uh, like I mentioned before, they're actually helping with some of the repositioning of assets now. And they're also kind of part of the greater Chicagoland efforts. We have two, three other alternate care facilities besides McCormick Place that they're helping build out. And so really the, the, the goal of McCormick Place was a short-term immediate solution. 
with uh, some moderate time frame there. But then the the longer term solution, at least through the fall, is going to be these other facilities that the teams help build out. They just haven't got as much attention as McCormick Place has. Sure. Uh, Colonel Trong, just a question about testing. I just want to be clear. Yes. I, I think it's been clear already, but you have to have symptoms, right, to get tested. Is that is that how it – because people are like, I want to get tested. No, that's a great question. That changes almost on a regular basis. At the beginning, yeah. At, at the beginning, you had to have – oh, my gosh. I know IDP, the Illinois Department of Public Health, it was very strict. You had to have a, a known positive contact, and you had to have symptoms. Otherwise, stay home. Things have really changed and things have really evolved in the past four weeks. I've seen numerous changes on a regular, several times per week. Every time I go in for an ER shift, I've got new guidelines. The most recent one was, uh, I want to say it was last Thursday that it was implemented, that it, it depends on your occupation really. And if someone is sick in that area, then you can come and you can get tested. When that happened, I mean, our phone lines in the emergency room just exploded. And all these people were getting tested. And so we would, there's a lot of a, you could drive up testing. So I know at Redbud um, in that area, because we serve, you know, Waterloo, a lot of Chester, uh, big Randolph County, Monroe County. And if you call in, depending on where you work, if it's some sort of textile or factory, and you there was a positive case, meaning there was an exposure, um, you can just drive up to us without a doctor's uh, uh, note, uh, and you can get tested. About a month ago, you need, gosh, it was, it's such a unique question because a month ago, you had to have a doctor's note to get tested. Well, a lot of the physicians out in the community, they were like, oh, yeah, you feel sick? Well, here you go. They didn't realize that there was a huge shortage of testing kits available. So when they would come to the emergency room to get tested, the ER doctor would sometimes have to override and say, unfortunately, there's just not enough. We literally, at, at sometimes we had, we were testing 30 to 40 patients a day. We would have sometimes we wouldn't have enough test kits. So we had to kind of pick and choose. It's a lot better now. Things are a lot, um, over the past four weeks, things have evolved. There's a lot more testing sites and a lot more testing kits available that I don't really see that we're having that same problem. Um, you can say the same thing about our PPE as well. When I, when the whole thing first started, we really had to uh, use our personal protective equipment cautiously uh, because we didn't have enough N95 respirators, masks going around. Um, so there would be times where I would have to put an N95 mask on when I'm treating someone that's under, under investigation for COVID. And I would have to hang on to that mask, put it at a corner. And if I ever go back into see that patient, I would use the same mask. I can't use the same mask on, on different patients. Each patient has to have a specific mask. Now it's a little bit better. We have a little bit more, um, personal protective equipment, but I think we've come into the, uh, gotten into the habit of good use. Um, we are, I mean, it's the nursing staff, the physicians, all the healthcare workers. If someone, if you're manning someone with active COVID, I mean, we get fully kitted up from gowns to respirate, to, to masks, to, uh, uh, eye protection, to our, our hair, uh, our, our gloves, to covering our heads. I mean, we're, we're just fully kitted out. It gets a little bit, um, it gets a little bit uh, difficult when a, a complex critical patient comes in. I'll give you an example. I had a patient that came in just the other day in sepsis, sepsis. So when you come in in septic shock, I mean, we have to do blood work. We have to do chest x-rays. We have to start immediately start antibiotics. We've got to do blood cultures. But at the same time, we have to minimize our contact with the patient. 
So oftentimes our amazing nurses would go in there fully kitted up, start, you know, they would start the IV, start blood work, you know, draw the, draw the blood work and even assist with uh, getting x-rays. So the x-ray technician doesn't have to come in. So they would roll in the portable x-ray and the technician would stand outside the door and kind of direct them where to put it. And then the nurse would take the x-ray. Just some amazing things that, that, uh, that the healthcare team has, has come together to try to minimize our risk. Because yes, we do want to take care of our patients. They're our number one priority. But at the same time, we want to minimize the risk that our people are getting as well too. So. What, have you seen any change in the amount of cases, Colonel Trump? Any what? Amount of, a change in the amount of cases have gone up, gone down, or in your area? Uh, I have seen, it's, it was, it's been constant. I want to say it's going up uh, just because I think we're testing more people. Right. Um, I, I would say that the critical patients, every critical patient that I've dealt with with COVID so far has had numerous comorbidities like congestive heart failure, poorly controlled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension. Um, and those are our folks who are getting difficult. Um, they're the ones that are getting, uh, having a more difficult time overcoming the disease. Okay. I see. Sorry. Um, Colonel Compardo, how have you guys, how are you guys been trying to stay safe up there? Oh, we take the, the precautions like Trump, Colonel Trong has mentioned, you know, we all are social distancing appropriately. We uh, wear our cloth, cloth masks. You know, another way that helps us is, you know, a lot of, to Colonel Trong's point, a lot of people like to touch their face. Uh, a cloth mask can prevent you from touching your face too much, right, as well. So, um, and then, you know, we do get screened every day. So we come into the corporate okay. place or we come, come into the Thompson Center and every day we get a screening. So uh, if you do, if you are symptomatic, obviously it would be quarantined um, while you get tested. Uh, thankfully, none of us uh, have been in, have, have had, any, had any symptoms. And frankly, the McCormick place has a lot of people coming in and out of every day and uh, we haven't had any symptoms uh, from other workers there, which is uh, knock on wood. So what's that test like? Is it, I heard you didn't think the, what is that test like? For the uh, to uh, to be tested for the coronavirus. Yeah, what's that? I what's it go all the way to the back so, of the. So it's a it's a nasopharyngeal swab. So it's not. There's two types two types of swabs. So a lot of people get confused. Oh, I'm gonna get swab, and they get a little Q-tip inside their nose. No, no, no. This is a uh, this is a uh, a a. a uh, uh, we have to get a sample that goes way back into uh, into your nose. Um, it's a good. Oh gosh, I don't know how many centimeters it is because there's a, a line but it goes way in there you'll be uncomfortable for a couple seconds there oh, okay uh well colonel fonti uh colonel Trong, colonel comparted do you guys have anything else you would like to add i would like to add just uh my unwavering gratitude for the two gentlemen here you know, that you've interviewed today but also all the rest of our medical folks that are helping either militarily or in their civilian communities to do everything that they can. Um, we're a big family. We do try to stay in touch. Um, people are, are definitely making sacrifices for the betterment of their communities. Um, with Colonel Trong, we've missed him uh, militarily because he's been so critical in his civilian role. And uh, I'm sure that Colonel Comparto's family and his workplace is missing him as he's taken the opportunity to help you know, keep the spread of this from coming down to visit us. Um, at some point, I'm sure Colonel Comparto is going to be called back to his uh, civilian position. 
So I just want to say thank you both to Dr. Fong and Colonel Compardo and everyone else uh, who's out there making the sacrifice to keep the rest of us who are staying home safe. Thanks, ma'am. Colonel Compardo, um, when, any idea when you guys think you're going to start seeing people come back, back to their homes? Well, it's a little bit uh, undetermined uh, to some degree. I know in our, in our positions with uh, supporting the director of IEMA and Homeland Security, there's a lot of lines of effort that's going to run through through May. Um, but we're going to right size the force to make sure we have the right people in the right slots doing the right work. And, um, and you know, we're you're looking at, you know, swapping people out and, and that kind of thing. So to give people uh, a little bit of a break. So, um, and so, yeah, so I think we'll start seeing some people trickle back in. but. Um, you know, this, this, this doesn't, the fight doesn't stop after the end of May when the presidential order for Title 32 uh, steps goes away or if it's extended. So um, we're just kind of waiting and see what the next strategy is. All right. Colonel Chong, do you have anything else you would like to add? Uh, yeah, our people, you know, the, the National Guard um, reaction to this has been swift. It's been stellar. I think that we are here to support our local community, and that's exactly what, what we've been doing. I absolutely, you know, I was active, active duty for many years, and I joined the Guard back in 2013 now, I think it's been so long for me. Um, and so I've been on both sides, uh, and I absolutely love the mission of the Guard um, and the community involvement that we are in. Um, I've, on a side note, I've known Troy for many years. He, I consider him one of my BFFs, if you will, right? And, uh, and everyone that's deployed out there, you know, I try to call them on a regular basis. Everyone's in, in good spirits. Um, and it's not just me. We're all supporting each other, whether Troy or anybody else is deployed uh, out in Chicago or if their families need, need our help or anything. Um, I think we've really come together well, not just as a guard unit, but as the National Guard as a whole. So I, I think we're doing wonderful work, and I'm very proud of each and every single individual taking, uh, taking, taking their, 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 their role in this. Thank you, sir. Thank you to Colonel Dr. Pamela Fonte, commander of the 126th Medical Group, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Tony Chong, 126th Medical Group Chief of Aerospace Medicine. And thank you to Lieutenant Colonel Troy Compardo, Chief Administrator, 126th Medical Group, currently on duty at McCormick Place in Chicago. Uh, stay safe, sir. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining me. This has been the 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast focused on people, mission, and community. I'm Tech Sergeant Brian Ellison.